Hello and welcome to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM in Saskatoon and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. I'm your host, Michael Peterson. What's being tonight is artist Linda Duval and curator of exhibitions for the Ramey Modern, Rose Batelier. Hello and thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks for having us. So Linda, your project, The Unacknowledged, is currently on view at the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra offices on 20th Street. And then there is a multi-faith and non-faith ceremony from 3 to 5 this Saturday, June 25th, correct? Correct. If we can start for our listeners, if you might be able to just describe a bit about the project and sort of some of the motivation behind it. Sure. Well, the project acknowledges people who, when they die, uh, their bodies aren't claimed. uh, So uh, for various reasons, uh, whether they were estranged from their families or lived too long or were incarcerated. There's various reasons why people's bodies aren't claimed. But I was really realizing that they are a crucial part of our community and our families, extended families, and that I wanted to find a way to acknowledging and acknowledge these peoples who are unclaimed at death. And this is built out of, I'm assuming, your practice leading up to this, and this has been a fair amount of work, I'm sure, went into this project in a fairly long process. It was endless. No, <laughs> no it was about three years. Wow. And there's a process where you s- just pay attention to something, and and I think I tend to work based on what matters to me. And so, you know, I knew about this, and then it just didn't leave me. So after a year, I realized this. I wanted to do something about this. And then the next step is deciding how you're going to address it. And so then I developed a project where... I invited different people from across Canada, right more. I actually told people about the project and uh, and certain people said, yes, I really want to work on this. So uh, each person did a panel and I asked them to think about one person that was unclaimed and unacknowledged at death, but they're identified by the hospitals as Jane Doe or John Doe, like right. 23. When each person was thinking about that one person, in fact, they knew nothing about them. In fact, they could even choose what number they wanted. This sort of meditation on someone that you have no information about then. Yeah. And then does, because this is also a project acknowledging different ways, different ceremony, different faiths, or as you said, non-faiths practices. So first of all, there were sort of 30 different panels, and these acknowledged a different person. But I always knew that a crucial part of it was naming these people. Okay. But it's naming the unknown. So that I wanted to have an, an event that actually acknowledged, that created the ritual that they were missing when they died. So, uh, so we developed this event that, that's happening this Saturday. And to do that, I went around to various communities in Saskatoon and simply asked them, you know, what happens when somebody within your community dies? What do you do? What do you do the first day, the second day, the third day? What do you eat? Do you eat anything? What are all, you know, how do you handle that? And it was just incredibly moving to hear the range of approaches to acknowledging death. And hmm. out of that came this event. Well, and then this event is being carried by yourself, Rose, as part of the Ramey Modern Summer Program. So I, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about uh, your own interest in the Rameys in developing this project. Yeah, well, I've been with the Ramey for four months. So the project was underway just at the beginnings when I started, but I was thrilled to have the opportunity to work closely with Linda on it. 
Um, but also want to mention my colleagues, Director Gregory Burke, Chief Curator Sandra Guimarez, and Troy Gronsdahl, one of my fellow curators, who've all sort of had a hand in seeing this project along from the start. And as you mentioned, it's part of our pre-launch program, which are events taking a place across the city before our new physical location opens next year. So these are art projects, installations, happenings, talks, parties, you name it, that are looking at art in an expanded framework, connecting to the community, and Linda is an artist that exemplifies our goals with this preliminary programming, which is to experiment, to examine the potential of art, to get people talking about what new forms art can take, and to bring people together in conversation. So it was sort of an ideal project for our pre-launch program. Certainly community-based at that point, too, with the multi-face ceremony and then just as Linda's work going out to all these different communities. So that's part of the focus then sort of moving forward is connecting with these different communities in Saskatoon. Yeah, definitely. One of our goals is to just be as relevant and diverse and welcoming as possible as an institution. And that means engaging with people through their own interests, their own beliefs, their own communities, and really working with artists that are interested in that as well. And as you mentioned, you came into this project midway through and sort of, because Linda's been doing this for three years now, so <laughs> less than midway through, I guess. But what has your sort of influencer role been or, or how have you helped, tried to sort of direct or support the project maybe? I would definitely say support. Fair. I do not see myself as a director. <laughs> but really it's, you know, having conversations with Linda, understanding what's important to preserve with the event, what's important to emphasize, how we are going to reach out to people to make sure that they know that they can come to an art event. I think there's lots of barriers, be they social, economic, or just awareness when people think, oh, it's an art event, it's not for me, or it's a religious event, it's not for me, right? So part of our work that we've done together as an artist and curator has really been trying to figure out the best way to open the project up to as many people as possible. Well, and then maybe we can talk a bit about that ceremony. And I'm wondering if you can sort of provide a bit for listeners of like what that will look like or what they might be able to experience when they came down. Yeah, well, Linda has put together quite an impressive group of people who are really leaders in their communities, many of them. I think we have a total of eight or nine now people are very enthusiastic to participate. (laughs) But basically, um, people will be met with a lot of prayers, chants, there's a choral arrangement, really a wide array of short, but very intense and I think very meaningful presentations. And Linda can talk a little bit more about some of the particular people that she's worked with. Well, I'd say just to add to what Rose just said, I was very interested in the sort of the visceral quality of having any kind of ceremony, and particularly a ceremony around death. Mm -hmm. So quite a few of them, you won't understand the words, but it's the quality of the chanting of the singing that that moves me, and that's what I wanted in it. And it's sort of seamless. So there's going to be a, a singer who will sing each of the Jane Doe's that are 
hovering around the room on the panels. And then each person, and it, so we have uh, an imam from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, someone from the Saskatoon Muslim uh, Association, from the Hindu man, a Sikh, a Christians, which was an interesting because there's way too many Christians, so we had to, you know, come <laughs> put them together, um, and a Buddhist. And what's interesting is there are strong differences and there's amazing similarities in approaches to approaching death. You mentioned that there is no information about these John Doe's or Jane Doe's. So then the choice of faith or the choice of religious leaders, this was based more on the participants that you were then contacting as opposed to any information about the unacknowledged themselves. It was really much a fact that we know nothing about them and it's who's in the community and what are the range of observances that are happening in the community. And in some ways, how do you bring this community of Saskatoon together and you do it by having that shared experience around an acknowledgement of death. So then have some of these faith leaders been sort of dialoguing or working with each other leading up to this or has it been more individuals working with you and then you sort of choreographing from there? That's a really interesting question because there are all these groups like there's a multi-faith group and there's an ecumenical group. So I actually worked with some of them but in fact I'm dealing with you know, individual people. And I guess what Rose said, they tend to be leaders in their community. And it wasn't necessarily that that person, but sometimes somebody else in the community who is the chanter. Okay. Like say in the Hindu community, it's the person that's the chanter that will be, who teaches chanting, that will be doing it. And the imam in in one will be doing it. And, And different people. And you'd mentioned too, there is the space for non-faith or ceremonies as well? Well, I was struggling a bit with that because, you know, there's not everybody is part of those particular communities. And then I met the Unitarian who said that they absorb the atheists, the agnostic. And I was like, this is the group that isn't part of any of the other groups. So they absorb them in terms of if there was someone who you were planning a ceremony for who wasn't religious? Or no, way more than that. Okay. Like, so they're not based on, and, and I, I hate to be representing them, but they don't have like a scripture. They are agnostic and atheist, but they were also crucial because during the AIDS time, they would bury people that the other communities wouldn't. Really? So they have a very special role in this community. And the woman, the, the minister in that community had been away, so she just got back. And it was like, yes, she needs to be part of this. So she's doing the ceremony that she does, which is quite moving. And it's, it's basically our lives are like candles that burn at different lengths of time and go out. And it was more poetic than what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I know when we've talked about this project, you talked about the aspect of research that's involved. And and for yourself, this idea of moving through different communities and learning from these different communities as you move through it. Yeah, that was a a really crucial part and something that I didn't know would sort of take over my life to the degree it has. Where I, so I'd meet with somebody and it'd be like two hours later and, and they were explaining sort of basically their faith because in order to talk about their relationship to death often they'd start with birth and there's this great there was one person that said we whisper this particular thing into the baby's ear and then when they die we whisper it in their ear again and I was like 
That's amazing. So there was all the there were these like very moving parts to it, and I and the other thing is that I met with a lot more groups than are included in the event on Saturday, for and for various reasons. Like the Rabbi Claudio was incredibly generous at the synagogue, but it's Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath, so the next event has to be on another different day. <laughs> <laughs> and then, as you said, not all are involved, but also I'm assuming just for the scope of the event, there had to be certainly a lot of editing on your part or pulling pieces from these different conversations that you've had. Or has it been more on the participant end in terms of what they have planned for their small period of time? In some ways, like I probably didn't do much editing in, in that like there's no rehearsal because they know what their prayers are or their, their rituals are. And it's not something that you just do. Like the, the First Nation one is a, basically a song that is, has been given to them through the generations. And it's, you know, it's very sacred to them. And I don't know what it is. Like we will hear it on Saturday. Right. You'd mentioned this idea of them being performers or participants, but in a different way than we might think of in terms of they're actively sculpting what this final performance will be. Yeah, and that was that's been interesting for me because like we don't know what any of them will do, in fact. Except for <laughs> somewhere I've been to a funeral with that congregation or that group. But I have a sense of it from talking to them and I understand what it means to them. And there's a place where they can describe it a bit and that's going to be in the, the brochure that is handed out. And Rose, on that end, you talked about sort of your role as support in this, but I'm thinking that you're even one step further removed from some of this in terms of supporting Linda, who's then working with these performers. And so what has that been like from a gallery side to sort of, you know, I feel like there's a lot of letting go of control. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And I think in that sense, I've learned a lot from Linda over the course of this project, because I think the way she works with people is really beautiful and that she gives them trust and she gives them freedom and she allows them to surprise her. So there is that sense of, of letting go as an artist too when you work with collaborators. And as a curator organizer, that can be a little bit difficult sometimes because there's a lot of boxes to tick and lists to make up and, and people to coordinate. But I think that it's, yeah, learning how to kind of be open to the humanity of everyone involved and that leaves some space for a little bit of chaos. What really happens is that <laughs> I'm like, Rose, come sit down <laughs> and then I'll guess who phoned, <laughs> guess who's participating now. And Rose was just like, good. <laughs> a lot of collaboration then and, and openness to the project really developing with these various communities. Yes. Well, and I think there's a difference between sort of controlling something and working with them. And it's been really important to sort of provide a shape, but to let them, to say, is there something within your faith that fits with this? And it was, you know, and I was open to if there wasn't. Right. And, and each person thought about it and said, well, this is something that's, that makes sense with these unacknowledged people providing a framework then for that person or those communities to sort of build a ceremony around, but understanding that there would still be some commonalities in terms of length of time or the space that's given for each of these. We aim for that. <laughs> <laughs>
And this, to my understanding, builds to some extent out of your past practice. And I know you've done a fair amount of work with correctional services and with those who are incarcerated or otherwise separate from communities. And I'm wondering if that has informed this project or your practice is built from that. That's very observant. But I think there is something about the absence, that general sense of absence, and, and who is our community? Who are the people in our community? And it's easy to get into this, you know, the art community, but... I think in a lot of my other projects and in this one, it's saying I want to know and respect and be engaged with the broader community, which includes people of you know different colors, different faiths, different uh, politics, you know, all of that. But also those who we have almost on a formal level sought to separate from. I'm thinking of those who are incarcerated when we mm-hmm. do like, separate them from community, and yet you're saying that's still our community, just in a different way. That's interesting because the very next project is actually actively creating a situation where I am going to remind people at Nuit Blanche of the people who are absent because they are a part of our community and they will come back into our community. And that, I think in, in most of my projects, it's something about wanting to, to be aware of the people who aren't represented, who in some way are voiceless or are invisible to the sort of dominant culture. It's interesting to me as well that you're saying you've been working on this for three years because a lot of your practice is taking you to Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. And so has it been working on this project at times from distance or sort of fitting it in in those times when you're back in this community? Well, what really happened was that the friend who's there who started this, because she's a chaplain at St. Michael's Hospital, which is the downtown hospital, and she'd tell me about them because... Her role was that she wanted to be called if when they were dying, and uh, and she was always aware that you know various people were coming through that she knew there was nobody there when they were dying and that they were going to be going into the the quote unacknowledged file. And I should say that they're unacknowledged and they're unclaimed, but the institutions know who they are. So it's not a criminal thing. Okay. It's that they people die for whatever reason, nobody claims them. And so so I started calling St. Mike's, and they have a person who works on that full time, trying to find families for all these unclaimed people. And there's something about that that just sort of struck me. And then it connected to lots of other things, like the works I'd, I'd done in the correctional in the past. And so I involved people in two healing lodges in Saskatchewan. So the Willow Cree in Duck Lake, and then there's one just north of Prince Albert. And their connection to it was like very direct in that one person has been in jail for 50 years. So he has a good chance of being unclaimed because of having lost connections over that many years. Interesting. So that he's got a community, I'm assuming, within the prison system, but no one who can claim him when he dies then. (sighs) Yeah, and he does have, he's actually just can get passes. Okay. And so he still can go back to the home reserve. Okay. Uh, but when he wrote it, he was like, well, he actually, he kept saying, you should see my be my counselor. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not your counselor. But it was sort of like he, what he wrote mattered so much to him when he thought about uh, John Doe. He took it from a very 
possibly personal perspective in terms of almost imagined that being himself. Then. Yeah, well, and different people did it in different ways. Some people created fictions. Uh, one person, every morning she got up and she took a hair out of her head and she used it to create a needlepoint X on a tea towel. And she's still doing this. And like, as she do, did it, she'd think about this one person. And, and some people just started writing. And um, the very first person, in fact, started writing. Then she, uh, after a few days, she realized that this could be her. And I'm like, you know, how could this be? She's, you know, quite a well-known filmmaker. And she, she said, you know, I live alone, I travel. I could disappear and people would just think I was somewhere else. Hmm. And, and everybody had, I think that did it, had a connection. And then the stories and those projects that you're talking about, this makes up some of the text that's on the panels. Is that e correct? Each panel is uh, acknowledging one person. And then these are currently hanging in the windows of the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra offices? Most of them. Most of them. <laughs> some are on the wall. <laughs> right. But so people can pass by, stop outside, read some of these, or come in to the offices and read them from inside? Yeah. But part of choosing that location was that you could be walking by in the street and read them. Okay. And I also would say in terms of the issue of the white cube is that this is a project that probably doesn't fit in a white cube or in mm -hmm. a regular gallery space because there's an interesting thing about how, you know, there's expectations of art, you know, sort of in terms of certain kinds of skills. And I was concerned that people would say, well, you know, this isn't drawn well, when in fact that's not what it's about. Mm -hmm. It's about each person working to acknowledge this person in their own way more about a personal expression or a personal connection with that idea than about yeah. a formal or technical skill. Mm -hmm. Does it, did you have that reaction? Hmm. I actually think the project is a little bit more flexible than that. I think that it function would function well in either location because I think um, it would just be two different ways of viewing it. And what I love about it outside of the gallery space is that people don't instantly view it as art. They view it as image, as text, as something that they can engage with however they may choose to. And it's actually been incredible. I've just been up for a couple of days in the windows and almost everybody stops to pause and, and read a little bit of the story and actually engage with the work. And those are people that might not take time out of their day to go to an art gallery, right? So we'll be talking a little bit about this sort of division, often in audience, that can happen around the white cube versus something that's a little bit more out in the city, mm. in a place where there's very diverse walking traffic. But I think the project is interesting in either context because of that. Because of that, it's breaking down those sort of boundaries in both cases. And I'm interested in those boundaries. I guess I get concerned about whether the power of the white cube mm -hmm. sort of overrides the fact that it's these multiple people that have put their heart into it. I think that's, yeah, that could definitely be a risk to it. And I think it, that sort of emphasizes, I think, the issues that a lot of art museums are struggling against. The fact that the white cube is this, you just, what did you say, <laughs> crushing or overpowering? <laughs> Right? There's That's, a weight there. There's a weight. And that, I think, is what a lot of artists and curators and institutions are sort of hoping to 
push against a little bit in terms of how they present work and the types of work they present. And then on the Saturday, there will, as you said, be this service. And it's a two-hour service, but is this something that visitors could come and go from or take pieces from at different times? Or is it something that people should sort of try to be there for the beginning? I, I guess it could be either, and, I, and I'm, I'm really open to that, and we've, I've sort of always said that, but people seem to be planning to come Great. to hear it. And maybe because... Um, I've designed it sort of seamlessly so that there's not nobody like nobody's being introduced. Like there'll be simply uh, someone singing Jane Doe 23 and then immediately somebody will be starting to chant their song in Arabic or in whatever language, mm. Ukrainian, whatever language it is. I would say too that it's not two-hour ceremony. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> yes, right. to, to, to frighten people away. The program itself will probably run a little bit over an hour, and then there's time at the end for the food service and the mingling and the discussion and sort of social aspects that take place in and around commemorative events. And then there's an artist talk as well on the Tuesday night, the following Tuesday at 7 p.m. And then you're coordinating, and then Linda will be talking at this, obviously. Yeah, and this will be much more of a discussion than a than a talk I would say it's an opportunity to reflect on the event which will have transpired by then and I'm sure we'll have learned a lot and be surprised and have a lot to talk about so it's a chance to reflect to talk a little bit more deeply about some of the issues or questions or concerns and responses that people have had to the work and kind of bring back our participants perhaps and the artist community and really uh, have a dialogue that's a little bit more focused on again yeah, the questions that this project might raise. And then I guess I would say as my last question Linda considering the amount of connection and time spent with these communities and the relationships that are built I'm wondering if this sort of is an ongoing like not necessarily that you know where it's going but just that it's is that a continuing relationship? I think it always is and and I will just say that the the reason that the, the people from the correctional were in this one, because they keep calling me up to say, what are you doing next? <laughs> Can we do it? And the other thing is, I, I, so I took Rose and somebody else to the uh, Hindu fundraiser last weekend. And I guess my way of, of looking at it is that they have supported me in this, and it's really important that I support them. So the new mosque is opening in the fall, and I think it's really important to be present and, and acknowledge that this is a major event for them and that that is like sharing as, as somebody who lives here it's it's sharing in all of these highlights in these communities or or whatever happens like they're people that are in my life now yeah and I would say we sort of touched on this idea that it's an art event maybe people don't know that they can come and attend and I'd say the reverse is true because we went to this incredible lunch at the Hindu temple and it was like I would kind of assume oh this is a a community event I'm I'm maybe not allowed to come but we were welcomed with open arms as guests and the fundraising for their new temple and you pay ten dollars and you get an incredible lunch of five different types of curry and dessert and wonderful conversation and they do this I think every two weeks until the new temple opens and it's just an amazing culinary experience that people might not know that they can just drop into I think as an artist I have a responsibility to my community and I, I feel that that and that my community isn't just you know 
people write pieces that I see all the time, it's that broader community. And that one way or another, I guess I want to bring them together. And it's just way more interesting. Well, and again, then Saturday, June 25th from 3 to 5 will be the multi-faith and non-faith ceremony at the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra offices. And then same location, Tuesday, June 28th at 7 p.m. will be your artist talk and discussion. So people are welcome to join. And it's really important because this keeps coming up. There's no dress code and it's free and you don't have to be invited. Because of all these questions, I'm really understanding even more how people don't understand what a how a gallery works, that it is for everybody. Well, thank you both for joining me. Again, I'm your host, Michael Peterson. You've been listening to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM. A reminder that you can listen to this episode or any of our past episodes on our podcast at unframedradio.com. And you can always follow us on social media. We're at Unframed Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you and have a good evening.